All right, well, this morning we do look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 uh, to 13. And uh, I believe that the, the last three verses actually tie in uh, directly and specifically to the first few verses of chapter 3. So this morning we'll look more closely at verses 6 to 13. I've entitled this message, The Wisdom of God and the Mature. The Wisdom of God and the Mature. As we look to what Paul is saying, very much in this particular verse, as we start uh, verse six, he is tying it directly to the argument that he's going to make uh, to those in First Corinthians chapter three when he readdresses the conflict brought to him by Chloe's people. And that conflict is raging. And Paul is a, is uh, he's building up to dealing with that conflict specifically in the manner that he sees fit by the power of the word. But he deals with this area of maturation for the believer and defining what it means to be a mature, uh, a mature Christian. He also discloses what he can give to the mature Christian because uh, he only gives that which the mature Christian can handle. And so we look to these things, uh, but we also recognize that when Paul is dealing with both the power of God and the maturation of the Christian, he deals with the wisdom of God. And so the wisdom of God is therefore related to those who understand that wisdom. So they would be considered wise. So it's those who understand that wisdom and they put that wisdom to practice. That is whom Paul identifies as those who are wise and those who are mature. For you look at verse six, he says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. And what is contrasted are those who rest in the wisdom of men. And rest in the power of men and not the power and wisdom of God. And so it looks very different from the vantage point of being a Christian when a Christian is resting in the wisdom and power of God. It looks very different then it stands to, uh, to be placed as a contrast for those who rest in the wisdom and power of men. So both are, are, are at odds with one another. And the grand scope of what Paul is doing is he's trying to point to the fact that the Christians have to be united on the front of God's wisdom, but they also have to be united in the area of relying upon God's spirit. Because so many will say that they're united around the things that are said, but they have to unite around the reliance upon the spirit of God, who certainly bears the responsibility at a perfect percentage, the responsibility of bringing forth the things that God has decreed. And so Paul is dealing with that in the spirit search of, of God's wisdom, the depths of God's wisdom, and then disclosing it to believers. And so he's telling the Corinthians that they have to be united on that front. They have to be united around those points because what is encroaching and in every church, there's something that will be encroaching to cause people to become distracted, discontent, disheartened. But in this particular context with the Corinthians, what is approaching is personality occultism, uh, personality cults that are established among men to raise up factions around human beings and also all that goes with it. The foolishness uh, among those who believe themselves to be wise because they are hiding in people that they believe to be wise. And so Paul is dealing with these things head on. And I believe that it's very applicable to us in the time in which we live. Uh, I believe that it's also very helpful for us to consider what it means to be a mature Christian. Because today, 
maturity or maturation. When one thinks of a mature Christian, it's made to mean everything except everything except the believer's ability to understand spiritual things. I believe that when people speak of mature Christians, they speak of it in terms of because I have to tell you what it's not. They speak in terms of it made to mean everything except the believer's ability to understand spiritual things, to understand spiritual things, receptivity to spiritual things, walking in spiritual things. So Paul is not making uh, uh, maturation among the Christian to simply be exclusively tied to age and experience because you have those who are young and who, and who are wise and you have old fools. You have those who are young and experienced by sharpening their discernment in the truth. And yet you have those who are of age who are foolish. You have those who are of age who have wisdom. And then you have the young who are foolish. So what the appeal here is to is wisdom. Because wisdom levels, God's wisdom levels the playing field in such a way that we are now defining spiritual things by uh, the spiritual source who grants those spiritual things. So essentially, when one says, am I a mature Christian? You first begin with the fact, do I have God's spirit? And if you're born again, then the answer is absolutely yes, you have God's spirit. Am I a mature Christian? Then do I understand, consult and put into practice God's wisdom? Because that is what a mature Christian does, that they are seeking God's wisdom. They're walking in God's wisdom. They will not be uh, straight away from God's wisdom and they also proclaim his wisdom to others. And so that is what it means to be mature. It does, he does not relate maturation uh, to mentorship, which would have been popular at that time because you have a philosophical ideology just flowing through uh, the Greco-Roman Empire. Uh, you have this idea of mentorship where people just gather together and project a certain common interest toward one another. And therefore, as you and I grow in that common interest, we are deemed mature and advanced. And so Paul is meeting that head on because if you really look at what Paul is attacking, he's trying to pull people away from that and exclusively to the wisdom of God and to the power of his spirit. Because once we do that, we then have with the Christians uh, we put them in position where they have what is already theirs in Christ and they can now walk in, in, in uh, they can walk in it and walk in it abundantly. So Paul, he does not relate it to mentorship. He does not. You know, I know today it's very popular for the life on life uh, discipleship model uh, to come into view where people are just tied to one another by conscience, by interest. And very little of it is tied to the word of God and the convictions therein. And it is this idea that one's life is placed upon another life in the name used such as accountability is therefore projected forward to push people in a direction called wisdom, which really doesn't find its way in the text. It becomes a nitpicking, uh, becomes a nitpicking mentorship relationship. And Paul is against that. Paul is attacking that. Paul wants nothing to do with it. And we have been saying it even in the last couple of verses. I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to see that formed in anyone. I want to see Christ formed in you. I want to see Christ formed in me. I don't want to see men formed in you. I'm not trying to give a certain coldness 
uh, whereby we don't regard what men say who come from Christ, because I believe that we must we must regard those who are in him. But I mean, we don't regard everyone on the basis of subjective feelings, age and experience, certain uh, appearances of success and visibility. So Paul is saying this, and I believe he's applying it directly to what he will say in chapter three. I want to turn your thoughts there, because in chapter three, when he after he goes into what the spiritual man ought to receive and spiritual maturation, he then calls them immature. Look at verse uh, one of chapter three. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. You're my brothers, but I can't go beyond I can't go. Be, I can't go to where I want to go in my teaching because you are not spiritual. So some might say, well, why? Why does he always harp on this? Why? I want him to give us more. Well, are you mature? Can you receive that which is given? And that's Paul's question. That's his question to the church in Corinth. And that would be my question to any of us who are under the hearing of God's word. Are we able to receive that which God has given uh, or are we in the flesh? Because he says that he says, our brethren could not speak to you as the spiritual men, but I have to speak to you as the men of flesh, as infants in Christ. Look at verse two. I gave you milk to drink. I had to I had to reduce the diet of what I'm giving you because you could not handle solid food. You can't digest what I want to give you, so I'm going to give you enough to nourish you and hope that you grow so I can give you more. And he says as much. Look at what he says in verse two of chapter three. For you were not yet able to receive it. And he points their fleshliness to their persistent identification in foolishness and labeling it wisdom. And that foolishness is practiced by hiding in men, even men who are doing things that are biblical, hiding in men and making their work to be. More so related to how you essentially erect them as idols and as uh, uh, cult leaders, because that's what they were doing here. And so Paul says, you're immature. You're immature. I want you to grow. I want you to go beyond that. I want you to take that which belongs to you and not only receive it, but grow in the knowledge of it and practice it and put it to use. But he says, I, I can't do that. And so here he is building up to what I just read. As you look at it in its larger context. But I'll tell you what he says is essentially. Paul identifies the mature as those who refrain. Telling you what it is now, those who refrain from the false wisdom of the world. We already saw the purpose for which he demonstrates not these persuasive words of wisdom, but the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. When he says in uh, verse when he said that in verse four, but then in verse five, he says, well, the purpose for which I've done that, the reason I come to you determined to only preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, it's so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I believe that as we progress through Corinthians, you're going to see something overtake the Corinthians. And it is this. It's not only that they become dull of hearing. It's that they become dull of hearing Paul. And so when Paul is preaching to them and when he's telling them, you can almost see him explaining to them the simplicity of what he's doing and why he's doing it. And, and you almost see the open challenge by them, by their actions and by their words, saying that's not enough. 
It's not enough, Paul. And Paul then begins to reason with them and say, well, it is enough. It's all sufficient. And should you abandon this wisdom, you are settling for a wisdom that will be destroyed, a false wisdom, the wisdom of men. And so he's trying to protect them. He's trying to protect them in their minds. He's trying to protect them in their hearts. And he wants them to enjoy true fellowship because when you're raising up factions among people, you're not you're cheating them essentially out of fellowship. You're cheating them out of a love that they should have for one another. And so Paul says that they are indeed cheating themselves. The mature may not be found among the elite and the powerful. The mature may not be found among the elite and the powerful. They may not be found in high society. But they are indeed found among anyone who understands the teaching of Christ, understands it, understands it, and lives according to the teaching. Not a forgetful hearer, not a hearer only, but a doer, as James says, and they live according to the teaching. And so what Paul is then saying is then the fools are the immature. The fools are the immature because he says, yet we do. We do speak wisdom. We're different from those who are speaking in such a way to get you to rest in the wisdom of men. Paul says, we speak wisdom. And then he defines what that wisdom is. He says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. So I'm not just generally speaking, but I'm speaking to those whom I hope can handle this and whom I hope are mature, he says. That growth in Christ is evident among them. That we speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So Paul is saying, I'm not speaking foolishness. They are. But they're saying we're speaking foolishness and that they have wisdom. And I'm sure that all the criticisms of, and we see it even in Acts, particularly Acts 17, where Paul is in the Areopagus and he's dealing with the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he's bringing forward the truth concerning Christ crucified, the knowledge of him, the lack of partiality in God, and yet the partiality in their gods and in themselves. And they call him a seed picker, an idol babbler. And they, they, they criticize him and ridicule him for keeping it plain, making it simple, preaching in the power of the spirit. They criticize him for it. And so what Paul says is, well, when I'm speaking I'm addressing the mature. I'm after the mature. And I will define maturation for you. And I will define why the immature cannot receive it. And that is what we're building toward. And I tell you that the danger and the battle is that many who are mature are cast off as immature, too heady. The fact that the word is proclaimed in its simplicity and in the glory of Christ. And yet those who are deemed mature are those who can step back and not necessarily deal with the word per se, but deal with everything else. And so in the most general of terms, I'm saying that because what Paul is saying is that the rulers of this age do not have that. And they are dying along with their false wisdom. And Paul is also telling the Corinthians, don't cheat God in his wisdom in this way. Do not borrow from the philosophies of the world. Do not borrow from the methods of the world. Because in doing so, you're opting for a wisdom, false wisdom, that is going to be destroyed. 
And so he puts a contrast between himself and them in verse seven. He says, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. I'm going to get further into that. But what he is saying is the fools are immature. It is the foolish who are the immature. It's not those who can stand up before you and speak the truth concerning Christ and break it down by the power of his spirit and then deflect all glory away from their person to him. That's the mature. Mature is not a matter of ethnicity. It's not a matter of age. It's a matter of the new birth. It's a matter of is persistence in sound doctrine and living according to it and consistency over time. The fools are the, are the mature. Those who may be in the seat of power and those who are the rulers in this age, they lack the understanding of spiritual things. It's why they have to come up with everything they can and they're walking contradictions trying to figure out how things work. But it's because they, they lack understanding. They lack wisdom. They lack the ability to apply even that which they're hearing. But the wisdom we have the wisdom that we possess as Christians, it was spoken by God through the apostles. It's not the wisdom of the sages. It's not the wisdom of the philosophers or so-called iconic men who have no connection to the truth in Christ Jesus. It's not their wisdom. It is wisdom from God. So as I've said, Paul goes on to define it because if we're talking about wisdom and then we have to look at wisdom and who possesses it. And if you possess wisdom, then you are deemed mature. You are deemed mature if you have wisdom, if you have God's wisdom. So this has to turn our, our entire idea, if it needs to, as to what it means to be a mature Christian. A mature Christian looks at God's word, understands it, speaks it plainly, and can apply it and lives according to it. That is what it means to be mature. And I'm not saying anyone arrives there in absolute perfection in this life. There are certain challenges. But what can be generally said about that Christian is that they live in such a way to want to be in total agreement with the will of God. That is the mature. That's the mature Christian. And they consult his will in his word. They consult his will in his word. But he defines what it is specifically. And I'm so thankful that he does that in verse seven. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Oh, what's that? His wisdom in a mystery. Does that mean I can't find it? Well, I'll tell you whenever. And Paul's going to say it in this text. Whenever wisdom is used in this way in the New Testament, it is a wisdom that was once concealed in the old and thus it is now revealed in the new. And so Paul is saying it is something that was once hidden that could be found. And it's not hidden from us who are believers. It's hidden from unbelievers who cannot come to terms with it. So that is the wisdom we are concerned with, God's wisdom. But we also consider the source of the wisdom. God is the source of the wisdom. He is the one who grants it to his own. He gives it to those who are his children. He gives it to believers. And so therefore, it is a spoken wisdom as well. It is a wisdom that is spoken. It's not simply a wisdom that is possessed. It's not only simply a wisdom that we hold and you have to gain it by birthright or initiation or induction. 
It is a wisdom that is given by God to those who are his, and it is a wisdom that is proclaimed and spoken openly, outwardly. As I've said, it is God's wisdom. It is not hidden from us. It is not hidden because we cannot understand it. It is not hidden, and it's not so in such a place that we can't find it, we can't obey it, and we can't understand it. That is not true. It is that which was once concealed and now has been openly revealed to us. And Paul is going to say that later on in this particular uh, context. He's going to say it has been freely given to us by God. That this wisdom is freely given to us by God. It's not given to us by the academy. It's not given to us by a conglomeration of and collection and anthology of books. It is given to us by God's wisdom in his word to us directly by his spirit and to those who have the new nature. They not only can hear it, they can understand it and they can and they can apply it and they grow in it. It is the sum and substance of God's decree and his will. By some, I mean totality. By substance, I mean the depth and breadth of it. It is the sum, the totality, and the depth and breadth of God's decree and his will. And so when we look at this, he says it very plainly in a mystery. The hidden wisdom, look at this, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So you and I didn't create it. There is no essential person founder of Christianity, except we can identify that as the God man, Jesus Christ. But we don't have an individual in modern contemporary evangelicalism who is the forefather of this wisdom that we possess. We don't look back in the, in the last 200, 300, 500,000 years for any man who's come along in society and has given this to us. We have received it from God long before our existence because it says he predestined it. Sounds like predestination is pretty important. He predestined it. It's not something you conjured up in and of yourself. It's not something you gave to yourself. It's not something you were seeking and happened to stumble upon because you were in the right coordinates. You received it from God because he determined and willed it so. But that is a glorious, glorious thought. It is wisdom that he has given. But this wisdom is something that God established in eternity before you and I were here. Now, as we receive it and as we understand that we have received it and as we testify to the new birth and our salvation, it has been, as the Bible says at times, made manifest to us something that has happened before our time has reached us and now it is revealed to us now in temporal time line by line moments we come to a place in our lives where we now see it for what it is and we agree with it as it has been given and decreed but you and i didn't decree it you and i didn't come up with it and the blessing in that is that there are no coincidences there are no coincidences god has placed us where we are in this moment for us to continually be exposed to his wisdom in his word. 
And so in that, we have him and him alone to praise that he has revealed his wisdom to us in ages past. He predestined for us to have it before you and I were a twinkle in the eye of your parents. Before you and I existed upon this earth, the great I am said, I am going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you the new birth. I'm going to give you my son, Jesus Christ. You specifically. That is a display of awesome power. Because if I had to get it from a man, I'd have to wait. I'd have to take some time. I'd have to hope he can find me and I can find him. But when I think about what God has given me, he did it in eternity. He elected me to this wisdom. That is so encouraging to the soul. That even as the world fights me and fights us together and wants to mock us, wants to scare us away from this wisdom, the temporary and contemporary movements of religion that come along that have very little to do with anything concerning God at all. They come along and tell you, try this on. But you and I, I don't want to settle for that. I want the wisdom that was predestined for me in eternity. Before I was here and God gave it to me. And then he's going to talk about how then that wisdom that we have begins to confound those who are in the high places and those who are foolish. And we have to now dethrone them and put them to shame. So this this that which we possess, our salvation, our new birth and the wisdom that comes with it. Is, a, is an eternally powerful thing vested in us. This is what it really means to have eternal power, that we have eternal power in us because of the one who resides in us and we abide in him. But this is the wisdom we are concerned with. It is eternal. It is eternal. Paul uses that term predestined before the ages to our glory. He not only says predestined, but he takes away any notion of predestination being such a thing that you conjure up because he says predestined before the ages, predestined before the age. He gives you a timestamp. So everyone wants to either rewind predestination to make it a thing of man or forward it, fast forward it to make it a thing, a work of man in some respects. But none of that is true. We had nothing to do with it except the recognition of it by the gift of faith given to us. The fact that we have wisdom. But then you understand how sinister it is to try to quiet this wisdom. How sinister it is to try to uh, suppress this wisdom given to us by God. It is eternal. It is eternal. God established it in eternity before we were here, and then he brought it to us and determined it would be so before that was apparent to us. When you stood outside of God's wisdom, he had already determined that you would walk in his wisdom by the new birth. This wisdom that Paul speaks of is very much tied directly to divine election. Very much tied. Now you can see why people... Out there, uh, these people who hide behind the religious cloth, they hate God's wisdom, so they replace it with something else, and they hate divine election. 
They hate it because it dethrones their wisdom. It marks off for them that the time is coming when their foolishness called wisdom will be destroyed. It's why they hate it. This wisdom, though, is not given to every person. It's not given to every person. The wisdom of God is not given to all people. Because Paul makes that distinction. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, he says. And then the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. So when we sit back and think, well, how come the government, how come these leaders, these people who are dead in their sins, how come they don't get it? Paul just told you why. He said, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. And he's speaking very much to his own context with which he lives. But I believe it applies all the way throughout the, uh, the age in which he found himself preceding his time in the prophets and certainly through the church age in which we find ourselves. Because he says none of the rules of this age is understood because, listen, if they understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood God's wisdom, they would not have crucified God's wisdom personified. God's wisdom in Christ. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's not given to, to every person. We see only foolishness in those who do not possess it. They are fools. There's only foolishness in them. I don't say that arrogantly. I say it truthfully. They're fools if they don't have that wisdom. Paul says even those in power who have had access to all the scrolls, all the written work, classified documents, the best philosophers in their academies to instruct them. Because some of the most renowned emperors who have risen had access to all the earthly wisdom at their disposal, at the snap of a finger. Yet they could not come to possess the wisdom to which Paul refers on their own. Learning the world's ideologies and system does not put you in contact with God's wisdom. The evidence of their foolishness and the failure of their foolishness is that they crucified Christ. That's the evidence. Show me how an individual regards Christ, speaks of Christ, proclaims him. Show me their relation to Christ in their speech and actions, and I will tell you if they are wise or if they are a fool. I can tell you how people speak, think, and act regarding Christ. How if you set before them, well, the Lord would have us do it this way, and they go another way. They're fools. God said to do this, and Christ has commanded us to do this, and they decide some other alternative action. They're fools. They're fools. They may be saying they're wise, and everyone may believe that they're what, but they're fools. They're only pretending to be wise. But the evidence is the crucifixion of Christ. And for those who would say, well, no, that's a historical thing. I, I haven't crucified Christ. Oh, yes, you have. If you don't follow the Christ who has been crucified and risen, you would have had a hand in his crucifixion. To despise him now would have been to despise him then. But it shows us here 
that those who possess God's wisdom, what Paul is saying is, if you had God's wisdom, you would have worshipped him, not crucified him. Now, it was certain that Christ was going to be crucified by fools. But those who crucified him were not wise men. So Paul said the wise worshipped him. The wise followed him. The wise take up their crosses and follow him. But they would have known that he came from glory. Paul then goes to Isaiah the prophet. Things which eye has not seen or ear and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. He makes this statement to punctuate a couple things. First, it really heightens the foolishness of man. Because you have the God who sent his son to prepare eternity for us and to grant to us eternal life. Richly gives us all things and you crucify him. So you're a fool. But the foolish man understands nothing about Christ and the full person and works of Christ. The foolish man in this day in which we find ourselves erects everything else as worthy of worship and not Christ. And even so, relating this to the conflict, the one that Paul is addressing, this was the problem with some among the Corinthians who tried to establish cults of personality and factions. It was their problem. It's why Paul, when he answers them, when he wants to confront them, he says, was I crucified for you? Because if the answer is yes, then all wisdom is hidden in Paul. But the answer is no. Christ was crucified for you. So you need to be in him. You need to get behind what he's about. You need to be in his will. But that foolishness is not wisdom. It's not wisdom. It's not wise to raise up factions and personality cults and unduly praise men and giggle and become giddy over men. That's not wise. Much can be said about that, but I'll simply put it this way. It's foolish. It's foolish because the wise don't do that. But I'll heighten it even more. It's blasphemous. Because to worship men is to ascribe salvation power in them. It's to say that they are the source of divine wisdom. And there will be temptations and overtures from the flesh and from Satan for people to do that. But one has to resist. You even see it in Scripture. The rejection, even by Paul, the rejection of man's attempt to worship him as a God because he's bringing forward divine wisdom. That's Satan's perversion to try to tempt people to be diverted away from God's wisdom and to divest it in a man in whom that man, if he receives it, will be destroyed. Paul also brought in Isaiah to demonstrate the eternal glory prepared for the believer. There's a positive to this. Why settle for men who are not putting you in position themselves to be joint heirs? Christ did that. His substitutionary atonement, so to speak. His vicarious, sinless life. His fulfillment of the covenants. No man can say that they have done that. In fact, in our view, it's not that we don't view men in a way in which we love 
them and we love the fact that they have God's image in them. But we do not ascribe to them worship because none of them has accomplished what God has, especially in the area of predestined divine wisdom. So he brings him in to demonstrate eternal glory. And essentially, it it provokes the question, why pursue the fading wisdom and pleasures of this world? But then Paul tells us the difference between the mature. And one thing you'll see that uh, one thing you'll see that's not present. There are not here categories of maturation. He doesn't he doesn't promote categories of maturation. There are only those who know God's wisdom and are labeled as mature and those who do not know God's wisdom and are labeled as fools. It's very black and white, ideologically speaking. But he says, for us, for to us, God revealed them these things that he quotes concerning the scope and breadth and height and depths of God's kingdom. And they have been revealed to us by the spirit. We've talked about this before, the spirit who searches all things, even the depths of God. You and I in and of ourselves would descend into all kinds of confusion if we in and of ourselves attempted to search the depths of God apart from our salvation. Thank God we have the spirit to do it. We have him residing in us. We have him pleading for us. We have him granting to us understanding in the word that we can walk away and step back and say, I know God because of the spirit. It's because of the spirit for to us. God revealed them through the spirit. That's the spirit's work. He took that which belonged to God and of Christ, the second person of the divine trinity, and said, I'm going to give it to you. You have it now. It is revealed. I've searched it and I've given it to you. I've made it plain. The promise fulfilled that Jesus said. But what then is the difference? Listen to this. The difference when we speak of the mature is then that all of the mature, all mature believers, and I'm not talking about categories of mature believers, all believers who would call themselves mature, first, they have the spirit of God living within them. So we can't we can't say that people are mature if they're not born again. And we can't say people are mature if they don't have evidence of working and operating in the spirit of God, according to what the Bible says. Because the spirit reveals us things and then we understand the spiritual things that God has for us. Look at verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. I want to just break this down very simply for you. But as we look at even verse 10 leading into 11... For to us, not the rulers of this age, but to us, he says, God has revealed these things. Not because you and I were on some quest. Not because you and I were on some quote-unquote spiritual journey and then behold, we found it. He says, God revealed these things to us through the Spirit. Searching where you and I cannot go unless we are in holiness in Him. The Spirit went where you and I could not go. And granted to us... That which now belongs to us in Christ for the spirit takes that which belongs to us, but also the spirit then searches all things. It is the spirit 
who grants to us God's wisdom and the maturation to live by it and according to it. For the depths of God are searchable by the Holy Spirit who resides in believers. Here Paul is dealing with the inner man in verse 11, the spirit of the man which is in him. He is not simply dealing with the seat of emotions granted to the suke, the soul. He's talking about the pneuma, the inner man. It's the same language he uses in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 25, when he talks about the inner man. The same language he uses when dealing with the inner man in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. I would commend that to you for further study. But he is talking about trichotomous man, man comprised of spirit, soul, and body. His seat of emotions, his physical form, and also that which is spirit. The depths of man himself. I do recognize that there are those who believe that those terms are synonymous, but the words are not synonymous. So we have to look at the words in their context. We have to understand that the constitution of man is what the spirit wants us to know because it is how the spirit operates. Paul is dealing with the inner man as the inner man appropriates and understands the spirit of God and the divine will. And all things pertaining to man's walk with him, thus to man's spirit. Paul says it very plainly here. The pneuma, the man's spirit. He says, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Features in the seat of man's intellect, not simply man's emotions. The seat of man's intellect. I'm not saying you can arrive at faith by intellect, but I'm saying that faith in Christ is highly stimulating to the inner man and his intellect. It's not mindless religion. It's not something that we're just doing so that we can appeal to your emotion and get you in a frenzy. It's not the absence of emotion, but it is profound emotion coming because a man's intellect is now in agreement with the divine will. It is the seat of man's intellect and man's spirit and thus the Holy Spirit bringing the knowledge about God to man in totality, to man's whole person. It is the spirit bringing the knowledge of himself to man in totality. Paul is dealing not with the mindlessness as is, the, as is falsely the virtue of our day. I believe you can condition people toward mindlessness. You can condition people toward just emotional stimulation, feeling good. But this is not simply feeling good, and it's not simply theory, as is also falsely the virtue of the day, where people can theoretically come to these things intellectually, and yet they don't want to deal with them by application and deal with them in a way that affects people in their emotions in the right way. But instead, he is relating it to how our intimacy with God is also with respect to our thoughts and God's omniscience, his all-knowing uh, uh, perfection over everything in our minds. Because he says, even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. So he's talking about agreement in our spirit with God, the Holy Spirit who resides in us. But he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, 
But the spirit who is from God. You see that distinction in verse 11 and verse 12. You have the spirit of the man, which is in man, the spirit of the world. And then you have the spirit who is from God. There's a distinction of all three. Well, what he's saying is that man's spirit has to not agree with the spirit of the world, because if you're a believer, you have not received the spirit of the world. You left the spirit of the world. You have received the spirit who is from God. So many want to bypass the mind for the heart, as they say in today's modern evangelicalism. They want to bypass the, the mind for the heart. We're trying to get to the heart. They say things like, I want to get your heart to think about this. And they use heart in such a way to try to make it seem like let's put our minds aside because that's not really useful here. Let's only deal with matters of the heart. But I'm here to tell you that there's also some who only want to deal with the mind and not the heart. But what Paul is saying here, Paul goes to the mind first. And namely, in our minds and thoughts, we have God's revealed will. So this has this has profound impact on not only my heart, but on my mind, because out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. That's why I say spoken wisdom. Our minds and thoughts, we have God's revealed will, his spirit informing us of divine truth from his word, his spirit informing us. In the inner man. And then now it's coming out of us. It's flowing out of us. This doesn't happen for unbelievers. They say what they're thinking all the time if you're listening. They can conceal things for a time. But typically, why did they say that? Why did they do that? And we have been, I'm talking we, America, in the modern century has been so conditioned to make an apology for that. But really, they're saying what they're thinking. You have to believe them. You have to believe them. When a person reveals what's coming out of their heart, I believe it. I believe it. But why would they use that word? Why did they say that? Why they? But here Paul goes to the mind. He goes to the mind. And listen to this. Paul says that the only contrast to this is not some form of immaturity in need of more books and activities. Because he says... Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Freely given to us by God. I don't have to charge you for them. They're freely given. God gave them to you, and they were predestined in eternity. But look, look at this. He says, which things we also speak. And then look at this. He says, not in words taught by human wisdom. He doesn't say it's the absence of words. He says it's the absence of meaningless words. But in those taught by the spirit, the spirit is teaching me what to say. The spirit is teaching you what to say from the word of God, because then the spirit is informing you as to what the will is and what to believe. It's called conviction. Ever seen people talk and they have no conviction behind their words. They can't put it together. It's why so many who are known as modern so-called preachers just get up here and just quote endless books and wisdom from men 
And they can't come to accord with explaining to you the things that the Holy Spirit has informed them of because the Spirit is not informing them. The books are informing them. Some other sage or philosopher or ideology is informing them, and so it comes out of them. It flows out of them. The success of it is not how many people are listening and cheering. The success of it is how many people are being led closer to God. How many people are coming to agreement by the Holy Spirit in what he says. Because what he says goes. The contrast here is not some form of immaturity. And we just need to inject you with a little bit more devotional study. Or other aspects that will help you grow. The contrast here is the spirit of the world. That's the contrast. Either you have the spirit of God like Paul is giving it to you. Or you have the spirit of the world. Because Paul says what is given to me is given to me by the spirit. And then if I say well let me hear what you have to say. And it's coming from here. We can start to make some conclusions. What you're saying is informed to you by the spirit. Because what Paul then goes into is combining, he says, which things also we speak. We speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. Look at this. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. He's not speaking of incoherence, words I can't understand, a different language, a different prayer language. What he's saying is that I'm thinking spiritually Because I have God's spirit informing me and I'm agreeing with what the spirit is saying. And therefore, I'm speaking in accord because my thoughts are then in agreement. And thus, my words agree with my thoughts. You can't fake it till you make it. You can't fake it till you make it. Because if you're faking it till you make it, you're a natural man. You're not a spiritual man. And I'll say, if you can't do what is said here, or the mind is not combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual things, Paul says here, it is because such a person has the spirit of the world. Some of these wealthy, evangelical, self-prop leaders are so confusing because it's, it, they're telling you I'm mature because I've been around a long time. You don't understand them because they're not informed by God's spirit. They're confusing because they don't have the spirit of God in them. They're not combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. They're combining worldly thoughts with perhaps trying to make it seem like spiritual words. And therein lies confusion. They're combining worldly thoughts with worldly words with a little bit of language in between. But they're not giving you wisdom from God. They're not speaking carefully and they're not thinking carefully about what the spirit has to say in his word. And therefore, when it flows out of them, it is absolutely confusing or devastating to hearers. However, we have the spirit who is from God in this purpose. It is for this purpose. We know who God is and to know what he wants us to know. And I'm going to put this carefully. It is for us to know. Because we're to know what is said. Look at this. He says, Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. And then he gives a purpose in verse 12. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So that we may know. 
We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Well, why do we receive the spirit from God? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So that we may know these things. It's not enough for me to just talk about them. It's not enough for us to just think about them. It's for us to know them and to act accordance with them. As I've said, he's not referring to the absence or, inco- or incoherence of speech. He's not referring to words that cannot be understood, but rather he's referring to clear words that cannot be understood from those who are perishing. Clear words, clear thoughts who cannot be understood from those who are perishing. Instead, our speech and thoughts are elevated, combined and in combination together, joined to what has been given to us in the spirit. The coherence and clarity, I say this, the coherence and clarity of our salvation. It is coherent, understandable, clear. Perspicuity of scripture is what the doctrine is called. Clarity, divine illumination by the spirit, making things plain for us and clear. It can be understood. Coming from our thoughts and minds, proceeding from our mouths into divine clarity. It is something divine, not in and of ourselves. But it is clear because God has made it plain. It is not only that the thoughts and words combine spiritually. It's not only that, but they work together to bring clarity of action in the lives of the believer. So the thoughts and words combine spiritually. It's not just us talking all day about what this means. It's us doing what it means because there's clarity of action because we truly believe it. Well, the Corinthians had serious trouble with this. They had serious trouble with this. And we will see next time as we look to the final verses in this chapter and re-enter the conflict that Paul hoped to resolve, what the trouble was. Let's pray.